are based on the design of the ancient Chinese of 5,000 years ago, that they had rockets. I mean, they were launching rockets. And uh, mostly for fireworks. <laughs> okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. We are going to be chatting to the one and only Jacques Vallée a little bit later about, you guessed it, UFOs. And, uh, of course, Red Pill Junkie is going to join us uh, for that uh, interview, which is great to get those two together. I, I don't know if you guys remember, but we heard Red's story about how uh, how enamored he was to meet Jacques. At, was that UFO Congress a few years ago? I think no, so. No, it was in Mexico, yes. wasn't it? No, it was in oh, Mexico City. No, I think it was... Uh, well, we'll find I, out. I think he went to the UFO Congress. We'll find out a little bit later. But, uh, yeah, so uh, looking forward to this one. And so is my co-host across from me here, the one and only Graham. I'm on video right now, and I didn't even know that Dunlop. No, really? <laughs> yeah. Come on. Where is it? It was the best I could come up with on short notice. Why? I don't know. Why not? I, I like to surprise people. To, what do you do? Really? I'm wearing a robe, bro. Robe, bro? Robe, bro. <laughs> a bro robe? Is that more apt? So why are we doing the video? I don't get it. I, don't know, I just threw it up. For what? Because I figure we won't be able to do any any interview videos this week, so right. I just throw the intro up and okay. surprise you. All right. And now I've thrown Jesus. you off your game for the intros, totally. and I like it. You're vulnerable the for the intro. <laughs> it's there. that one. Yeah. Hi, guys. Probably nobody's watching because I didn't tell anybody. Good. So there's that. Well, the problem is i got to read emails the other way. That's the problem. It's not That's set okay. up. We're That's not okay. set up properly for this. That's okay. Anyways, I got to order some new posters for behind me as well if we're going to do video just to switch it up a bit. Well, we got the new book, so we could, uh, we could, um, it came with that cool picture. We should put that up someplace. Yeah. The bookmark. Grimstake's there. Hold it up so Grimstake can see it. I feel like Grimstake is always there. Anyway, um, so what do you got for us? What do I got? Well, I got figured for this, uh, I was going to do like a weather modification report, but it still might be a little fresh with Hurricane Irma flying around. And I figured, uh, so we're going to get into the weather modification for the hurricanes eventually, but we'll wait till people have power. Okay. So I've been saving up listener UFO sightings. I figured it's appropriate to do some UFO accounts for the Jacques Vallée episode. Absolutely. And so you I've want to jump a, right into the quotes And I've right got away. a UFO quote as well, ready to go. Darren and Graham are going deep. It's a profound Jumping right into the quote this week. Quote of a week. 
I feel like we forget to do it sometimes now. No, 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 sometimes. A couple months ago we did. I heard about it. You got complaints? I was going to do one from Jacques Vallée, but I thought that's, yeah, kind of lame. Since we're going to be talking to him after. Well, we know what, why don't we have Jacques Vallée give us a quote at the end. Here's one. Give us a, Jacques Vallée, say something that will become a profound quote (laughs) in time. Over the past 18 years, I've acted as a scientific consultant to the U.S. Air Force on the subject of unidentified flying objects, UFOs. As a consequence of my work on the voluminous Air Force files and to a greater extent of personal investigations of many puzzling cases and interviews with witnesses of good repute, I have long been aware that the subject of UFOs could not be dismissed as mere nonsense. And that was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, the chairman of the Department of Astronomy at Northwestern University and scientific consultant for Air Force investigations of UFOs from 1948 until 69. Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book. It's a good year. Yep. I wouldn't know, but Woodstock and shit, right? Yeah. You weren't even born. I feel like it was a better time back then. I was listening to some ELO on the way here. You would have fucking went crazy back then. All there was was commercial radio. And it brought me back to like the 60s and 70s where it was, it seemed, I don't know, it seemed like there was less Internet. You take the internet out of the equation and we're right back there, buddy. Like I was reading, listening to John Keel's um, essays on flying saucers and stuff. And and it's it's amazing the stuff they were doing in the 60s. Like it was quite open. The investigations and all the people looking at it and they're talking to the government about it. Now it's just all, you know. It's all just ridiculed. I mean, it's opening up in a lot of other ways, I guess, but it does seem like in some ways we haven't even gotten very far. If it was still the fucking 70s, we wouldn't have a show, bro. That's Unless right. we were like recording onto tapes and handing them out at the mall. <laughs> <laughs> I guess yet. I guess that could be something. Could be. I suppose people were doing that too, right? I well, know, I think I it was around. more radio, I think. Radio? Was, yeah. Underground radio. I guess people were probably recording into cassette tapes as well, yeah. Well, when I was a kid, we used to record just for ourselves. In Do little, like fake little news things. Little cassette tapes, and really? No, here's Trevor with sports. No. <laughs> yeah. Here I am doing the fucking same thing with you 30, <laughs> 25 years later. Yeah. Except not talking about sports. No, talking about other stuff. Probably just as many people listening. Huh. Do I throw you, throw you off again? Yep. You have any synchros? No, I got, well, I've got some sightings, so. Sightings? Yeah, sightings from listeners. From listeners? Yeah. Oh, I've seen some of those come through, I think. There was also a uh, sighting discussion going back and forth on the Facebook today. Actually, I'll look that up while you uh, read those because it was from uh, Float Tank. Ivan? Isaac. Isaac. Isaac from Float yeah. Tank. Float, yeah. Float Life. Yeah. Seen a UFO, I think. Really? I'll find out. Okay, yeah, you look that up and I'll, I'll read a short one here. So this is from uh, Selena. Hey guys, listening to episode 220 right now, and it reminded me of a sighting that happened with my husband and I. A few years ago, July 21st, 2013, I worked for a company and we'd won a trip to Suncadia, about 80 miles east of Seattle in Rundle, Washington. 
It was for a weekend on Saturday morning, so we went to the restaurant for breakfast. After we finished eating, we kind of sat there and enjoyed the view of the forest and river below. As we quietly sat, there was a shadow the size of an SUV that kind of moved over the trees. We looked up, nothing. No clouds, no plane, nothing. It was total blue sky that day too. Then the shadow slowly moved across the trees away from us. At this point, we couldn't believe what we were seeing, so we got up and to go closer to the window and look up to see if it was a plane or not. Again, nothing. It got farther and farther away. It almost looked as if something shadow-like was crawling across the treetops or something just slowly drifting overhead, and all we could see was the shadow. My husband doesn't believe in UFOs either, so he kind of looked at me and said, Did you see that too? Meant to write you guys a while ago, but just haven't had any spare time. Oh, and in response to my last letter, the visual I had of you guys had me thinking of the kids from the Sandlot, all grown. Love that movie. Anyway, talk to you soon. I feel like, I feel like that could have been like a cloaked, you know, cloaked UFO. and It's creating a shadow, but you can't actually see the UFO. Like a Klingon? Yeah. Like a bird of, what are they, bird of praise or something like that? Yeah. I heard a post the other day that said they're making the Klingons Trump supporters in the next Star Trek. Oh, it's getting political. It's unbelievable. The propaganda in the in Hollywood. I'm losing I'm losing my my liking for that. Are every you? every movie now seems to have some bullshit in there about prop and it's you know usually one sided. Oh no, it's Todd Togakamacy's filming some UFOs over London. Oh wow. And then they just started uh, then Isaac said military drone and that's how Isaac got involved, I believe. <laughs> so, so, um, Todd Akabesis was, um, did a couple episodes, uh, ago with us and it wasn't was it last episode. Synchro, uh, was it? No, I think it was on before that. Oh, I don't know. Anyways, it was a great episode about synchronicities and. Synchro yeah, was great. That was just, like yeah, that. That yeah. was a fun one. Ooh, out, someone out was going to check it out. Yeah. Someone yeah, like a, works just down the road. Yeah, from we have there. a listener that's going to check it out. Fuck yeah. Report back. Yep. Or you're out. The UK posse. Just kidding. You could become the leader of the UK posse. I Actually, was, whoever goes and busts into that fucking fireplace and solves a Shakespeare mystery becomes the leader of the UK posse. Yeah. Which episode was that now? Who was it? That was, uh, oh, That was shit. going way back. Uh, not, not way back. Alan. But, Something yeah. Alan? Alan, yeah. Alan Richard? No. Richard Allen? No. Well, I'll find it. It's a Shakespeare one. It's yeah. a few episodes back. It's a good I'll put the link in the show notes. It was a good one. It was like fucking, it was like, uh, <laughs> it was like a thriller. Yeah. <laughs> like a mystery thriller. Yeah. And he went and measured the pyramids. Yeah, after yeah, that. yeah, yeah. People ask about him we, that we should get in contact with him. We should, see how we went. should. Yeah, we should go for it. Alan Green. Alan Green. Yeah. You know, he just came out of the blue. Some fucking guy emailed me and was like, "You got to have this guy on." Had it had CC'd him, and it was just like, "Ba boom, happened." Yeah, I had no idea what we were. Yeah, in that for. was great. Those are the ones where you just sit there with your hair blowing back. For that was like a, a real life hours. caper. Yeah. yeah. What happened next? <laughs> So anyway, if you listen to that episode, your instructions are in there. But we didn't tell you to do that shit. Don't even mention you listen to the Grimerica show. 
you know, delete all episodes of the Great America Show and destroy your phone before <laughs> busting open the motherfucker. Okay, do you want to do a jingle for this? This is uh, Rob from Italy. He's got a email. Got a UFO experience in there and a little I bit of feedback. Have a jingle. Why not? Okay, how about this? And now another edition of Grime American Goodies by the people. <laughs> by the people. Watch the lips. You shouldn't be on the- <laughs> Okay. Ooh, I know what I could jump into. Hi there, guys. Right to the point. I'm the first, or am I the first <laughs> Italian Grime American show fan? I hope so. What do you think? First no. Italian? No. No. We, had a, <coughs> we did that great uh, episode on that lake in Italy. Lake Morte? Nevi, Nevi maybe? Lake, oh, no, yeah. Lake Nemi? Yeah. 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 With that Italian guest, he was good too. That was fun. Okay, I'm listening to the show since a couple months and I really dig it. I like the fact that you guys- You are, are the first Italian to email. Yeah, that's probably true. I like the fact that you guys are very open-minded and don't fear any type of question or guest. Looking forward to supporting you with the donation and maybe a cool jingle straight from Italy. I wanted to get in touch with you just in case. I'd like to suggest inviting Angel from greatgizapyramid.com to the show. The guy's trying to reverse engineer the Pyramid of Giza, and he's pretty positive that the thing wasn't a tomb. Plus, he knows a lot about the code of Carl Monk. And it could be cool to add what Randall Carlson already said on the show. We're 99% sure that the fucking Great Pyramid is not a tomb. Yeah. Yeah. So what else? Is it Graham, the one tormented by UFO stuff? I'm not obsessed, but I can tell my personal experience. I was with my girlfriend in Austria, and we were drinking during the night. We weren't really drunk, but kind of happy, if you know what I mean. Anyway, it was summer and a very hot one. We went outside. We laid on a hammock and glanced at the stars. The sky was so clear, we could see nothing but stars. We immediately saw a dozen of stars. They were just tiny dots to our eyes that were moving and moving fast. They seemed to be fighting and catching each other. They were making curves and sudden stops and all these movements that stars don't usually do. They would change pace to a slower one, then accelerate like crazy again. We were stunned. The day after, everyone laughed at us when we told what we saw. They thought we were stone-cold drunk, but we saw the whole thing in two. No drugs involved. That's it. That's my only UFO experience. I tried to invite all my friends to listen to the Grand America Show, but most of them don't speak English at all. Keep what you're doing. Keep translate doing that shit. And have a good one in Canada. You should get someone to translate the show. I wonder if our dry humor would come across and... Japanese or something. Is it dry? I think mine is. Yours is probably dry. Yeah. Yours is just non-existent. <laughs> Thanks, right? I laugh. I've had some good laughs on here. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Some of my best laughs are on, on the show. Yeah. What else you got? That's it. No, I got another one. Okay, you do that, and then I'm going to jump into some uh, social media jangle. Got a, we got a C-City coming up. See five this weekend. Probably gonna do a sleepover again. A sleepover out in the forest. Ooh, it's gonna be this weekend. Yep, you're sleeping out in the forest is it this not? weekend. Why was wrong? Is it supposed to be cold? Let me see. Hey Siri, what's the weather like this weekend? I know it went from like thirty to eight. It should be sunny in Chester near this weekend. Daytime temperatures will start around fifteen and will head up to nineteen. 
with overnight lows. Oh, there's something you don't see in a while. Look, it's rainy every day but the weekend. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Too bad it's going to fucking snow tomorrow. Yeah, it's pretty cool all of a sudden. Yeah, it's snowing. Anyways, I don't care. I'll just snuggle there. up in a blanket, in a, in a you know, sleeping bag and whatever. That's it. Just for a few hours. Yeah. Apparently the cold's <laughs> better to sleep in anyways. Hopefully they'll take the fire bat off. Yeah. So anyways, going up there this weekend, wish us luck. Okay. You want so me to wish you luck? Yeah, I was looking for it, but you're too busy. I'm looking for the jingle. <laughs> Okay, so this is a trip report slash UFO sighting combo. You ready for it? Yes. So last, oh, so Graham, thank you for the show and all the wonderful hours of fascinating content you guys have given me. Here's a trip report with a UFO sighting that I experienced a few days ago. Last Saturday night, I had the welcome opportunity to use cannabis with intent. Ooh. Away from many of the day-to-day norms and distractions of my life, at approximately 11.30, I walked down to the shore of the lake at my childhood home under a particularly brilliant night sky. I centered myself, gave thanks, and focused my intent on being present in nature with myself. I smoked most of a cannabis cigarette. I'm a regular smoker, but my typical, typical consumption is not much more than a hit or two a night from a one-hitter device done in haste without much intent other than a stress relief or as a creative enhancer. That being said, I am no stranger to the strong effect that cannabis and other entheogens can induce. I observed the stars for a while with focused breath, noticed the beauty of the still lake at night, and just enjoyed the moment, standing alone on the shore. Well, shore what? What? Shore what? He was uh, at his childhood home on the lake. Oh. I was picturing the ocean for some reason. Oh, really? Was it a big lake? You weren't listening to the initial couple lines. <laughs> I'm still trying to find the jingle. 10 to 15 minutes later, I made my way up to the pool, which sits slightly above the lake and offers a beautiful view of the lake and the horizon. All the lights in the house and pool area were dark and the night sky was unobstructed. I lay in the water and float on my back with focused breath, eyes to the stars and just melted for a while. I became lost in the breath, near weightlessness, feeling, and the beauty of the stars. I played with my buoyancy and its relax and its relation to the amount of oxygen I carried, body position, the pace of my breath. I drifted between fully floating on the surface and floating vertical and face down. The transitions between these positions was incredible, and in the combination with my elevated state, breath, and the view. If I took more shallow breaths, my lower body would sink and my center of gravity would shift to the center of my chest. I felt like I was flying through space. It was an incredible and unique sensation. I'm not reading this very well. I drifted you in like this state. You need a drink of water. I you know, want I some do, water? I do, yeah. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> probably lost the best spot here. So he felt like he was I'm flying a through space. Hell of a time myself. It was an incredible and unique sensation. I drifted in this state and continued focused breathing until around twelve fifteen a.m. When something else amazing happened. I stood up in the water and leaned against the edge of the pool. I relaxed there for a moment while still looking at the horizon, still mindful but without focused breath. I noticed a sound to my left coming from the south southeast. Shortly after, an object comes into view over the lake about 150 yards from me and maybe 
150 to 350 feet in the air. I watched it as it passed above a large 100 plus foot tree on a point in the lake, 150 yards from me, traveling from southeast to northwest. My initial thought was that it was a plane en route to landing in a major regional airport about 25 miles northwest from my position. I happened to live in a very close proximity to the airport. I thought it was heading that I thought it was heading to, but more on that later. As this object made its way across my field of view, my initial judgment gave way to me repeating, what the fuck is that? Until eventually it faded from sight. At first glance, it looked like a large commercial aircraft with typical exterior lighting arrangements. But as I watched it pass, I noticed some very odd things. It was very large, traveling very slow, abnormally loud, but in a way I'm not familiar with, and its exterior lighting was off in a few ways. The lights were very brilliant red, blue, white, burnt orange at the aft end. There were no flashing lights, and the main body moved through my point of view, no, my field of view. The aft end became more visible, and at least two rows of three, maybe four, glowing burnt orange light sources became apparent. These were not traditional navigation or landing lights. They seemed to be the glow from some sort of propulsion. My jaw was on the floor as I watched it fade out of sight. I stood there in disbelief for a few moments and started anchoring the details into my mind. I noticed all the things I relayed above to the best of my ability. The sound it made was a combination of a normal jet-type propulsion, but under low power, combined with a powerful humming, like electric crackling frequency. Huh. I'm trying to relate its size to aircraft I'm familiar with, but the best I can do is the largest of commercial aircraft, i.e. in a 380 Airbus or a military C-5, which can be quite slow. No. Which can be quite a sight at low altitude, but I've seen C-5s countless times and even flown aboard one on a few occasions. Wait, I've, what? Yeah, he's been on a C-5. What's a C-5? That's that big transport plane, that okay. massive one that you see at the okay. air shows all the time. Okay. I was thinking like a C-5. C-5? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, wait, whoa, this just stepped up. <laughs> I feel like the dimensions were pretty different, but I'm, I'm comfortable with claiming those as comparable in overall size to what I saw. I want to say the length from nose to nose to the propulsion lift and tail section of the craft was longer than a typical aircraft. And a large percent of the overall bulk of the craft was carried in that aft quarter section. Picture a long cylinder with long, a large rectangular structure at the back, no apparent wings or lift producing shapes in sight. I don't know how to explain what I saw. I get how he's trying to anchor this in his mind, because that's kind of what happened to me when I... And you saw your double decahedron? Yeah, when I just, I was like thinking about all the details and just sort of anchoring it in my mind, like trying to just remember it all. Like, too bad you didn't have an iPhone. I know. I still wouldn't, it still wouldn't it have been a shitty justice. picture. Yeah. 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 Did you lose your spot? Yeah. So he says, I still don't know how to explain what I saw. It was a very surreal experience from start to finish, and I stayed up for another hour or so, still reveling in the sighting and overall sense of well-being from the meditation slash pool experience. So, caveats. Caveats. I'm by no means an expert on aircraft ID, but I was in the Air Force for six years and worked on the flight line in close proximity to many other aircraft. I also live 2.5 miles as a crow flies from an international airport with fairly consistent and heavy traffic. 
I'd say I'm very familiar with the sight of aircraft flying in close proximity to the ground because I see them landing or taking off pretty much every time I open my front door. I'm also aware of what air traffic looks like from my parents' home where this sighting took place. I've never seen a plane fly so low there. It's mostly cruising altitude with an occasional jet starting its landing approach or still climbing to cruising altitude, but even those are many thousands of feet up. I can't imagine why such a large aircraft would fly so low to the ground 25-ish miles from the airport. As I stand here now at my house typing this report, I'm watching a commercial jet coming into land, and it's easily twice as high as the craft I witnessed. That's, that's the other part. You Jesus, know, man. The, the skeptics want to just say, oh, oh, it must have been a plane or it must have been this and that, you know, something conventional. But when you see planes all the time, you know the difference. I keep forgetting we're on video too. <laughs> <laughs> what do you you know, it's funny. That day it was real cloudy. I want to say it was like three weeks ago. I don't know if I told you, but I was driving home from the shop and it was a real low cloud. And I was like coming up that rainbow road and I seen a fucking plane like dip out of the clouds. And he was like, I don't know if he was like, I was like, holy fuck. I've never seen a plane there before. And I live under a flight path, but it was a fucking flight path. Flight path. Yeah, they're kind of a flight path. So I see these, the planes are here. They're pretty low. You can, it's cool. You can watch them. It's kind of loud once in a while, but anyway, I digress. Um, anyway, I couldn't believe it. This thing's like probably, you know. What kind of plane? WestJet. See, you can even tell what kind of plane <laughs> yeah. it was. I mean, this is the difference. Right? Yeah. And it just like dipped out of the clouds and was like, whoop, and then back into the clouds. And I never seen it again. Huh. For a second, I thought I was going to see a plane crash. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So he says, also want to make a note on the meditation and breathing work I was doing in the pool. Hey, did you bring the paintings? No, I didn't. Come I'm on. I'm interrupt the last part of the story Sorry. here. It was very incredible and unique experience for me. I've had a handful of float tank, like sensory deprivation sessions, and despite the difference in some of the unique conditions you experience in the tank, floating in a pool like this alone with the night sky displayed it all in glory was amazing and not to be discounted. Next time I get in the tank, I will for sure be doing some breath work. Thanks again for an amazing show. Peace. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's from Kent. Thanks, Kent. Yeah. Okay, okay. there we go. Jeez. <laughs> we had the new moon, dark sky, which is great. What are you doing? Had a plan, camping. Closing out the segment. Oh, yeah. For the night. Crystal clear. Darkest night. So I had to read that meditation, did the singing bowl, and that shit starts happening. Pow, pow, pow. We started seeing flash bulbs. Okay. Okay. Streakers coming down. Crimped them up. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. enough. Come on. (laughs) Take my last name out of there. That's just a bit too much. I say say your name every episode. I know, but that's different. Is it? Yeah. I, it's it's I don't know. It's, it's, it's like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> so anyways, we should do our support spiel, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, you do it. Knock well, out. the best way to support the show, because we have no ads, no um, sponsors or affiliates or anything like that, is to donate any amount. Any amount. The best way to support the show is to sign up for a monthly recurring amount, which you can do at grammarica.ca slash support. I uh, got everything there from a buck a month to 30 bucks a month. But yeah. any but any amount will get you the black budget any support feed. Even a one-time donation. Which is extra content. Yeah. yeah. I don't enjoy sending out the feed. If you do like a one-time donation of $2, it really like irks me. 
yeah. So, okay, let's talk about this. This is the process. You donate anything, and then Darren actually manually writes you an email with a link. They're literally a two-man operation. Plus, actually, that's not true. So it's nothing automated here or anything like that. So if you don't get an email that day... At some point, like it's not going to come right away. It's whenever Darren gets around to it. Just if it, if you don't get it, you got to tell us and email us, and we'll make sure you get it. Yeah, if you don't sure get Darren it, Darren forgets sometimes. He doesn't even read my emails at all, so I can't imagine <laughs> how he's managing this process. If if you don't get, I think I've got everybody. If you're a subscriber or a donator and you don't have it, then let me know. Um, and if you do sign up for a monthly or do a donation and you don't get it within like three days, you you could email me. Yeah. Don't feel like you're bugging me. Yeah. Because I might like be halfway through it and something happens or I mean to do it. And then, you know, it just happens. I think I get everybody, but who knows? We're only a two man operation with some help from yeah, we get outside help, help yeah. but all that stuff is too bad. Yeah. It's all volunteer help. Exactly. Thanks for volunteer motherfuckers. What are you doing? Well, I thought we had more time left than we do. <laughs> so I'm going to plow through a couple of these and then we're going to cut it off. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Because we've got an interview starting. We're running out of time here. We've got an interview starting in four minutes. Yeah. Time flies in the igloo. Yeah. It's next level. Okay, we've got uh, 9-11 was an inside joke by David Rockefeller in the <laughs> Pentagon. Uh, the Dekashido. Great show as always. I like the as always. That's a shot at me. I don't even try to talk to people at 9-11 or any other event. I just tell them to watch Wag the Dog. Oh, yeah. Craig Fowler's. I'll put a, I'm going to put that in the show notes because people will forget. I like, the, forget I like the radio thing of the first episodes. That was cool. <clears throat> My fuck. Now you're affecting me. You're infecting me. Well, it's Did from you your, bring it's infection? From your, from your strawberry cough stuff or whatever you're doing. That's why you can't have that kind of stuff in the studio. Like you really. Green crack wax. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. See, I mean, it's Jesus. <laughs> and I'm not even partaking. I can feel the dryness in my throat. We got Natoli. Sorry, but this guy is a shill disinformation agent. I have followed the 9-11 thing for years, and this guy is a waste of time. If I could recommend the work of Dr. Judy Wood, the towers were were turned to a fine powder in midair. Follow the trail back, and you realize that they designed and built the towers, the Illuminati, had this event planned in 2001 and the towers were built with the advanced technology built into the design there is no rubble pile fake planes or tv trickery there is no way the end of a plane wing could go through the steel box section 12 foot tall people hanging out of windows Mm. and he gives a bunch of links there and then they start arguing um, I don't, you know, <clears throat> I do. We got the book right there. Our book came in today. I've been turned on to Judy Wood's work for uh, a couple of years. That's actually kind of what turned you around. That's what really got me on. 
onto it. But, uh, you know, you need these guys too. You know, you're not going to get architects and engineers, I don't think, to go that far. Maybe they think that far, but they're not going to go on the record and say, I think it was fucking crazy technology that doesn't exist. Yeah. Allegedly doesn't exist. And I'm on board with Judy Wood stuff. <clears throat> um, just paid a hundred fucking bucks for the book. Yeah. And we're going to have her on, but uh, I still think, you know, maybe if these, I, I, my thought is even if these guys do believe that, they're not going to come out and say it. You could, you know, you could easily destroy your career. I yes. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, from our gold buddy, Bill Anderson, this is going to be the last one. We'll do a longer segment next week because we've got an interview starting in about 90 seconds. Um, <clears throat> from our good old shill Bill. Um, direct from the chats. The neighbor behind me works for an American Institute of Architects. He coordinates their meetings and conventions. He's a total creep. I have a barbecue and play music after dusk. He starts flashing his yard lights. You would think doing that kind of convention work, he would at least be out of town every so often. Nope. Always there. <laughs> Young daughter of the other neighbor tries to practice violin in the yard during the weekend. He is bitching and yelling over the fence. She isn't real good at violin. But Jesus. And Joe Marr replied, Well, you know what they say, Bill. You can't pick your neighbors. This should always be regarded as law, as opposed to a theory or opinion. I have been able to find no way around it. You find the perfect abode, and some person will come along and put a fly in your suit. The next time I find a house I'd like to buy, I will sit outside of my car like a creep just to monitor flight traffic. But until they invent an asshole detector, I doubt I'd be able to spot a bad neighbor. And we got our buddy Coop says, bless up, guys. I don't know quite know what that means, but I like it. <laughs> hey, Thanks, Coop. everybody. Speaking of that, Coop's in the chat doing his fucking peace emojis again. Hey, Coop. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to fucking bounce so we can get into this interview. Yep. And, uh, yeah, enjoy the chat with... Uh, Jacques Valet. The one and only Dr. Jacques. Is he a doctor? And Red Pill Junkie. You doctor? I'm, I don't think so. Tonight we have a special episode. We've got Dr. Jacques Vallée with us. He's a legend in the, the field of UFOs and ufology for decades now. I'm really looking forward to chatting with him about uh, about what's new and how things have changed over the past few years. And we've also got Red Pill Junkie with us to help us out. So uh, welcome to the show, Jacques. Dr. Jacques, how are you doing? Very good. Uh, good to uh, hear your voice. Yeah, thanks. We, uh, 
We heard your episode on uh, on Skeptical there with Alex Sakaris. It was fascinating, and um, you know we really wanted to get you on the show. and And the first thing I wanted to kind of pick your brain about because I've been listening to 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 uh, Keel's Keel's essays on UFOs going back to the '60s, and I felt like you know I felt like so much has was going on back then, you know. And here we are, 50 years later, and in some ways, you could say that you know, we really haven't made a lot of progress. I mean, some of the theories that, that you guys had back then were, you know, they're still still valid today and we haven't really seen a lot of change. I and mean, would you agree with that? No, no. <laughs> and <laughs> maybe it's an optical illusion on my part that things are changing because, you know, there are, there are new people in the field. Yeah. Uh, there are new techniques for research uh, among among them, what we're using now, namely the internet, yep. which wasn't uh, wasn't there at the time. So we can talk about that, especially for something that has uh, kept me very busy the last few years, which is looking at uh, the sightings of phenomena in uh, antiquity, or mm. at least until until the Industrial Revolution, which we can now do things that we just couldn't get to in terms of the knowledge and so on uh, before the internet. Um, John, you know, John Keel was a um, complex personality. Um, at the time, um, of course, he initiated the, the, the idea of uh, ultra-terrestrials as opposed to extraterrestrials. Right. And uh, in, that, in that theory, we were very close. In fact, he was <laughs> mad at me. When um, when I wrote uh, you know one of one of my books, uh, especially Invisible College, because he was coming out with his own book, and he felt that I was copying him, <laughs> and uh, I mean, of course there was no way I could have copied him. I was on a uh, on a different track, but we were really going on on in parallel directions, and uh, going beyond the idea of just E.T., spacecraft, and so on, because by then, you know, I'm talking about the mid to late 70s, it was already clear that what the witnesses were describing wasn't a spacecraft, that it was something much more complex and in some ways much more interesting. So hmm. so that's um, that, that was my... And then after that, we became friends. <laughs> that's good. Red... Uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Valer, first of all, you know, it's um, a real honor joining my American friends in this uh, interview with you. Um, I wanted to mention how last week was the 40th anniversary of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which obviously is like, a, you know, seminal movie and uh, that really brought the, 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 the idea of UFOs to, to the masses. And we know that you... Um, one of the characters was kind of loosely based on you, Lacombe, and that you also consulted to Spielberg in the movie. In fact, you were trying to to uh, discuss with him, you know, that how uh, UFOs are not necessarily extraterrestrial craft, but he was kind of like going in the way of, well, you know, ETs is what the people want because it's the, what they they expect. It's easy to you know, it's easy to understand. So I'm going with that. Now, fast forward 40 years later, we see how, you know, the, the, the popular culture and sci-fi have actually 
begin to entertain fringier or more exotic, uh, exotic ideas for the UFO phenomenon. We have movies like, I don't know, Interstellar, Arrival, even one of uh, Spielberg's own movies, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, in which they show the aliens as interdimensional beings. So seeing that from your position, are you excited about the fact that, you know, popular culture is starting to get away from the idea of the UFOs equating them as extraterrestrial craft? The uh, Crystal Skull, you know, the the production company had bought the, the rights to a novel that I had written initially in French and then uh, uh, and then translated into English, and um, that idea of a multidimensional um, escape of the the UFO at the end on uh, the object is the saucer is inside a cave, and they think of course it's going to stay inside the cave, and um, in the novel the uh, the saucer goes into another dimension and and goes away from the cave so. That imagery came came from that from that novel, mm. and uh, you know that was that was a lot of fun. I think the the movie that would really show what uh, what a multidimensional object would look like and the effects it would have on its environment hasn't been made yet. You know, as great as uh, Steven Spielberg's um, contributions have been. And, but he was right, uh, you know, in Close Encounters, people would not have understood that at the time. Because, they, you know, before Close Encounters, all the UFO movies essentially had the same template. Uh, you know, good people in the country are moving around and they see a light and the light turns into this uh, saucer and the saucer lands and it, it starts, um, of course, scaring people and... And then you call the police, and the police gets blown away. And so you call the uh, air force, and the air force gets blown away. And you call the army, and they arrive with you know a hundred tanks, and they start firing at the saucer and so on. And that was always the the model. And uh, Spielberg was the first one who said, "Look, I mean, what people are describing mostly are lights, not so much hardware, and certainly not hardware that." that looks like our hardware. I mean, they don't describe rockets. And uh, it was, Close Encounters was the first movie where he showed both the uh, extraordinary light phenomena that surround the phenomenon and also the impact on the consciousness of the people. You know, the the psychic impact with uh, Roy Neri starting to try to shape, uh, to sculpt things that turn out to be, uh, you know, a model for the, the place where the, the saucer is going to land eventually. Hmm. But, you know, my only contribution, that character initially uh, was going to be an American, and then Spielberg turned it into a Frenchman, <laughs> and he, he told me that uh, we, we had lunch a couple of times, I was never a, actually a consultant for the movie. Dr. Dr. Heineck was a consultant mm. for the movie. Um, I met with Mr. Spielberg uh, twice for lunch, brought together by a, uh, a journalist who wrote an article about our interaction and, and uh, asked him 
who the character was based on, and uh, Mr. Spielberg said it was based on me, because as a teenager, he had read my earlier books. I wrote <laughs> a couple of books in the 60s, uh, Anatomy of a Phenomenon, and then Challenge to Science, that um, interested him, and he said that he had actually, uh, based on his interest at the time, he had made a little movie in 16 millimeter with a 16 millimeter camera um, about UFOs uh, already in those uh, in those days, and that his interest came from that. Um, he wanted, I think, he wanted a character who was alien. Uh, you know, if you can call me an alien, <laughs> uh, I, I, at the time I was certainly a foreigner <laughs> coming from France, so I was from a different culture. And he wanted to show the cultural differences between, uh, you know, the uh, the Pentagon people running around uh, trying to find out where the, the big saucer was going to land, and this French character who kept saying that it was a sociological phenomenon, you know, and that's where the dynamics came from for that character. Huh, that's interesting. And it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Huh. So Oh, sorry. And of course, we're talking about uh, how in the, in, in the movie there is the idea of showing the phenomenon having a, such an impact in, in the consciousness of the witnesses. And there are also other uh, deeply transformative uh, experiences that are still a, a deep challenge to, to science. We have near-death experiences and we have uh, psychedelic experiences and, and we have like... A, a, the experiments that Dr. Rick Strassman conducted in New Mexico, interestingly enough, in New Mexico, with uh, DMT. I don't know if you are interested in that, in, in the sense that there are some people in the field who are advocating for having a, a unified uh, field theory of the paranormal, trying to link all of these uh, seemingly uh, different phenomena, I don't know, ghosts, psychic phenomena, UFOs, even cryptid sightings into one kind of like common theory. Some people are still fighting about that and trying to keep the field separated, but what is your opinion about it? Well, I, you know, uh, I'm not uh, in a position to tell them what to do. I mean, <laughs> everybody has a right to experiment and to pursue. I mean, it's such a huge field and a big challenge. Uh, Everybody is welcome. Um, I've, um, you know, DMT and, and uh, ayahuasca and drugs in general, um, I've had, well, first, I, I've never taken any drugs. Not, you know, I, I tried to smoke once <laughs> and it didn't work. So uh, tobacco. I mean. So, uh, you know, I'm not an expert in, in any way. Um, I'm... You know, my opinion with that, I have nothing wrong with, you know, I, people who um, want to explore that, of course. Um, certainly there are many traditions uh, that um, draw their inspiration and their knowledge from, you know, including American Indian traditions and Middle Eastern traditions and maybe even early Christianity that drew their inspiration from uh, mm -hmm. psychedelics and other other forms of uh, altering consciousness, altering drugs. My own 
feeling is that uh, as a scientist, you know, my brain is pretty limited as it is, and um, I really don't uh, feel that I should um, mess with it, uh, hoping to, um, you know, discover something else. I'm quite happy to try to improve the little brain I've got. But be that as it may, I had very interesting discussions with Terence McKenna, who, of course, was, was an authority on mm-hmm. DMT and so on. And, um, and we were on a panel once, and we had discussions outside the, the panel where he told me about what people were describing. Uh, and those are very powerful uh, experiences of something. My, you know, my problem with it is that in in science, if you go on an exploration, you and you discover something, you want to be able to get back to the same place again. And my problem with much of the drug experience is that it seems to be a different experience every time. And so it is a form of exploration. I, I don't argue against that, but it's not calibrated. And everything in science, and I, I try to approach this as a scientist, you know, in a fairly rigorous, sober fashion, because that's what I can contribute. Other people can contribute other things. And so I've, I've tried to follow that pretty, you know, religiously. And um, so in science, when you, you use an instrument, you, you have to calibrate it before and after the experiment. You know? mm-hmm. You don't just, um, you know, go into the field and and read read out what you measure without knowing that your calibration is right and your instrument is actually measuring what you think it's measuring. Yeah. So, in what I've done, I, I've always tried to do that. Of course, with this phenomenon, you can't always do that because you're swept away by what the witnesses are describing and the variety of experiences they have. And uh, that's what you have to deal with. But I still try to apply, you know, that that rule. And that's why I don't think you can mix up ghosts and religious experiences. And you can certainly draw inspiration from it. For example, you know, I've written about Fatima uh, mm-hmm. and about other, you know, Marian apparitions. And But I've done that because the actual phenomena when you strip away the belief system of what people believed they were seeing, because they, they, they thought they were seeing the Virgin Mary, or mm-hmm. a manifestation that came from the Virgin Mary. But when you... So I respect that, and I put it aside, but what they are describing is a light and a disc and uh, heat effects and color effects and, and all of that, which I can recognize as the same kinds of, of physical effects that people are describing in UFO cases. So that's where I think you can draw those parallels. Well, talking about Fatima, for example, uh, it uh, brings uh, the question of just how powerful is uh, the phenomenon. You know, we, we have this experience of, of the phenomenon that starts with... Uh, Three little uh, children 
that starts to starts to have interaction with something and they tell their parents and words gets around in their village and more people start to gather around in that place Coba da Iria in, in Portugal in 1917 and they start to corroborate that something indeed is happening and it seems to be like there's a certain uh, build up between the amount of energy that the phenomenon manifests and the amount of people that is gathered to the point that, you know, we have the final uh, conclusion of, of or climax of the event uh, on October the 13th, 1917, when there were already uh, around 5,000 people gathered there and they all witnessed uh, the so-called miracle of the sun according to the Catholic Church, and there were people of, of all walks of life, you know, there were even people who weren't there because they were believers, but because they wanted to actually mock the believers. They were skeptics, they were atheists, and they all saw something, not, ex not necessarily the same thing, but they saw something. So could we interpret this build-up as something that the phenomenon needs in order to manifest into a reality? Uh, I, you know, I uh, I don't know. Uh, the phenomenon seems to be quite capable of manifesting any time, any place it likes. Yeah. You know, including mm -hmm. in the middle of the deployment of the American Pacific Fleet uh, a few years ago in mm -hmm. 2004. So I, I don't think it needs, uh, but it uh, it seems to. Uh, you know, again, it's a human interpretation here, but it seems to um, use the, the the beliefs and the consciousness of the of the witnesses in shaping its manifestations. And okay. I'm not the only one saying that. I mean, several people have originated that that theory of sort of mimicry, mm -hmm. uh, where the phenomenon seems to draw imagery. You know, including in the Betty and Barney Hill case, you know, and, and so on, uh, to draw its imagery uh, and its manifestation uh, and its display. You know, uh, Professor Salisbury, Frank Salisbury, wrote a book called uh, The Great Utah UFO Display because the phenomenon isn't just happening, it's displaying itself at the right time in front of witnesses that it seems to have chosen. And that's a very complex aspect of it. And it makes it, of course, you know, scientifically makes it very, very difficult to study. Now, you mentioned Fatima. There is a, a, a very intriguing parallel between Fatima and the version of Guadalupe in, uh, in Mexico, also, mm -hmm. which is, to me is an extraordinary you know, mix of probably some hoaxes on the part of the clergy, but also, you know, a genuine phenomenon. And cer certainly the, the sociological phenomenon is there. I mean, you had six million Indians converted to Catholicism mm -hmm. after, uh, you know, after that was uh, revealed. But uh, there, you know, there was a single witness. Wow. There was a single witness, but he brought back uh, an... Unbeknownst to him, he brought back an image on his tilma, you know, on his uh, vestment, on his uh, uh, jacket, essentially, uh, that was an image uh, 
that was so powerful that it forced the attention of everybody in the palace of the bishop and and started this uh, this mass conversion fatima you know that what bothers me about Fatima is that when people talk about Fatima, they talk, you know, and they are right. I mean, they talk about the big miracle in 1917. Now, you know, wind the wind back the tape, and you go back to two years before, 1915. Mm-hmm. There are three little shepherds who are tending the sheep and the goats. And uh, it, when it rains, they go into a cave. Not the same cave, not the Kovale area, but in a, another cave. And they see a light. And inside that light is uh, some, a human form, which is bright, that they call the angel. And the angel starts talking to them. And a, the angel says that he is the angel of peace. Mm-hmm. And he never comes out of the light. But they see this entity of light inside this globe of light. And they go into a sort of trance where they they uh, lose all energy. Mm-hmm. They are, you know, uh, any sense of energy is drawn out of them. And they... He gives them a prayer that they repeat, sort of, that they just keep repeating this prayer, and uh, that lasts for hours. And then after that, the, the light disappears and so on. And so that was already known in the area, but, you know, it was just one of those things that only happened to these these three kids. I mean, they were, you know, between 12 and 15, something like that. And then... Two years passed, and then in May 13th, 1917, um, the thing happened at the Kovadaya at Fatima. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been to Fatima. You know, there is no... Uh, the site has been paved over so that they, you know, hundreds of buses come there when big celebrations. So it's essentially one huge parking lot around a big... You know, a big cathedral, which isn't very pretty. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really a mass, <laughs> mass uh, a manifestation, you know, of the church, and it has lost the beautiful, you know, the beautiful story of these three shepherds. But then, you know, at the beginning there is just three shepherds, and then the next next month again on the thirteenth. <laughs> You know, there are 17 or 20 people, and then at the end, after, by the way, the, the shepherds have been put in jail one, mm-hmm. one month. Because, uh, remember, uh, Portugal had a socialist government. The mm-hmm. church, the last thing the church wanted was a miracle. I mean, they really didn't want the Virgin to show up. That was, politically, this was really a bad, bad timing. There was the communist revolution going on in Russia. I mean, we all know what happened in Russia in October mm-hmm. 1917. Yeah. You know, was Lenin and the communist revolution. Mm-hmm. And then that is the time that the Virgin uh, show, you know, picks to show up. And it wasn't 5,000 people in October. It was 70,000 people. 
and there there was a cordon of police and army trying to stop the people from gathering because again the government didn't want this and the church didn't want this so the the phenomenon certainly from a sociological and sociopolitical point of view was extraordinary mm-hmm. that the phenomenon you know sort of imposed itself on top of both the government and the church and the um, then everybody saw the sun uh, spinning around and all the colors. There was a professor of physics from Coimbra University who said, who described it as monochromatic sectors rotating in the sky. I mean, meaning sectors of a single color, you know, blue and pink and yellow and green and so on, spinning around where the sun should have been. And people who were a little bit off from the crowd saw the sun, and they saw a disc. They saw two things. Uh, the people on the, on the crowd saw only sort of a gray disc on top of the sun. There have been several interpretations of that, including optical illusion. Uh, if, you, if you stare at the sun thinking that there will, is going to be a miracle, <laughs> you know, you're going to, your <laughs> eyes are going to uh, be damaged and Mm-hmm. Your vision is going to be unreliable. You're going to start seeing colors. So people have argued that's what it was. Uh, only the shepherds heard a voice or perceived something, and only Maria saw, said that she saw the apparition. Mm. And then she spent the rest of her life uh, in a monastery. And, uh, you know, that was a story, but... The, pro- yeah. the problem is that a, a, an optical illusion cannot, you know, uh, dry the clothes of all the people who were, you know, in, on, a, on a storm, you know, after, before that. No, I agree. I agree. Um, the, to me, uh, I think the, the sightings, the reports from 1915 are very interesting because mm-hmm. they are authentic. I mean... There, there has been, they are not part, considered as part of the miracle by the church. The church doesn't hardly mentions it uh, as just in passing. And most of the books about Fatima don't mention it at all. To me, that's those are the three kids that I'd like to go interview because mm-hmm. they they saw something and they had this extraordinary effect of sort of not quite falling asleep, but being driven into this state uh, where they couldn't think, they couldn't move, they were just repeating this prayer mechanically. And they never said it was the Virgin Mary. They said they saw, you know, what else do you expect? They are going to say they saw an angel because they saw this this luminous creature. So enough mm-hmm. about Fatima, but to me, that was... Um, that was really what fascinated me, still does, you know, about this. The other thing that fascinates me is if it's the Virgin, she works according to a human calendar because she showed up always on the 13th of the month. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how does that happen? Yeah, very interesting. So uh, switching topics a little bit to the kind of more on the the ETH type, type vein, I mean, I wanted to get your opinion on this. So, you know, I think this is one thing that's changed. Like, you know, we used to have the contactees way back when, but now there's a, a movement and, 
and even just putting aside the organizations and the personalities involved in some of this, but a movement of people making conscious contact with something, you know, meditating and getting together in groups and going out. I mean, there's hundreds of them in, in a, you know, one organization and a bunch more in another organization. So how do you reconcile that? I mean, it's pretty easy for people to stick with the ETH when they go out and try and make contact and they see stuff. I mean, like the other night we were out and I'll, I'll be going out again on Saturday, but there was just six of us, but we definitely saw anomalous lights and flash bulbs and all kinds of different, different stuff going on. How do we, or how do you reconcile that with, with the research that you're doing? And does that interest you at all? And then on the, on the other side, what should we do as a group maybe to better document, or we talked about, you know, measurements and calibrations. I mean, it's very hard to, to do that. I mean, you can test, you know, you can try doing the same thing, the same meditations, the same type of, you know, the same people, the same location, the, you know, the same um, lunar calendar, that kind of stuff. I mean, I guess that's part, but is there any other things you would suggest? Uh, it's very, it's a very tough question. As you know, uh, there are a number of sites that have been claimed to be sites where people see things frequently. Right. And I, I don't, I, I don't mean sites where there is a known uh, optical uh, phenomenon of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, headlights in the distance. Uh, creating uh, mirages and so on. I mean, mirage is not a hallucination; it's a real optical phenomenon. Yeah, but it's repeatable. And so on. But there, there have been a number of um, places, especially around the U.S., uh, where things have been seen repeatedly, and some of those sites have been instrumented. Mm-hmm. Well, but we don't have, uh, you know, we. We don't have the documentation that we thought we would get out of that instrumentation. So you can put video cameras, you can put infrared cameras, you can put all of that. And yeah, you're going to get something, but we're not getting what we thought we would be getting. Uh, for one thing, we, we don't get the proof. And we don't, we don't get the kind of craft that people have been describing. Uh, you get lights, but you know you, you you go into the countryside in the middle of the night, and you, you know you're going to see lights, and lights are a dime a dozen. So, how mm-hmm. do you know exactly how far it was? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Lots of things in the sky these days uh, that um, you know may or may not be uh, ET advertised. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, Drug enforcement aircraft and satellites and all kinds of other things. No, drone, uh, drones. I mean, there's all kinds of, and then there's the, you know, the mil- military craft as well. Who knows what's out there for that? So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that all these sightings are ET, but, but uh, it's an interesting, interesting thing that might be able to be studied a bit more. Yes, and there, there have been documented cases where people, either meditating or you know, asking for. A manifestation, and there was a manifestation. So, I'm not denying that. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't. I don't know how to bring it into a, a, a scientific framework. That's all. I'm uh, so, you were asking at the beginning, you know, what's new, and uh, I think a number of, of things are new. 
first, um, of course, we've got the Internet. Mm-hmm. And um, so we can go back and document things a lot better than was true before. Of course, we also get a lot more junk. So you're, you know, you're putting more power into the, into the channel. You're going to get more signal and more noise. <laughs> and then it's left as an exercise to you to try to tell the signal from the noise. That's hard to do. But um, we've published, you know, with Chris Orbeck in Spain, mm-hmm. uh, we've, we've been working on uh, a book that we called uh, Wonders in the Sky, and we've done that book twice, actually. First, um, the first time we narrowed it to 500 cases before 1880. Now, before 1880, you don't have many things in the sky. Mm-hmm. You don't have... <laughs> You, you may have, uh, you know, a few balloons once in a while, but those were free balloons. Uh, you don't have dirigibles, and you certainly don't have airplanes, and you certainly don't have rockets and things like that. So uh, you have something that's fairly pure, and we've gone back to antiquity. And, uh, you know, I'm amused when skeptics, like some of the people at City, say, well, you know, there was nothing in antiquity, <laughs> resembling this phenomenon, so the phenomenon must be a new thing, and it's probably a bunch of hoaxes. And so on. Well, you know, I, I'm sorry, but um, many of the cases that we found, uh, we found in the writings of uh, Roman historians like uh, Cicero and others uh, that came from the archives of the Roman Empire. And the, the consuls in, you know, there was a whole... Um, period in the Roman Empire when it was run by three consuls, it was run by a consulate, and they were extremely interested in the things that people saw in the sky because they, for astrological reasons, they thought that uh, patterns of unknown things in the sky would be indicative of historical events that were going to happen. In other words, they were portents of historical events, you know, the death of a king or new war or, or you know, uh, famine or floods or things like that. So they made a rule that anything that was unusual in the sky had to be reported to Rome. So it, it's like, uh, you know, the president of the United States saying, I want the Air Force to give me a report on my desk every three months on all the UFOs seen in the sky. <laughs> and those were, I mean, this was, uh, they were not kidding. I mean, those were official records of the Roman Empire. We don't have all of them because many of them have been lost, but uh, we have, you know, dozens of them. And the Roman historians, uh, like Herodotus and Cicero and other great writers, um, reprinted them and included them in their books, and we have those books. And they have been translated, and they are available. And, uh, of course, many of the phenomena were things that we understand today. They were meteors, they were comets, they were, um, you know, globular lightning, they were things that... But there were also cases that we cannot... that were described carefully... Remember, they were described for uh, the triumvirate in Rome. Uh, 
so this was not some just some local you know, local Roman newspaper. <laughs> uh, this was uh, you know official record mm-hmm. of, of the empire, and uh, so we have a good description, and it matches what we have today as UFO reports. So we started from that, and then we went across to you know, the 16th, 17th century, 18th century. In the 18th century, you start having a lot of reports from astronomers. Um, astronomers whose names we remember today. And um, uh, again, uh, those records, you, you cannot say that uh, those, that, that was uh, hoaxes and hallucinations. So we have um, hundreds of those, and we've covered them in this book. And the patterns are the same patterns that we have from the reports from the U.S. Air Force and from modern U.S. reports. So that is new because there were books before about UFOs in antiquity, but they did not have access to that caliber of reports because a lot of this is, uh, you know, you find today on the Internet. Hmm. And, uh, you find it because... Not because of ufologists, but you find it because archivists and librarians and historians have been scanning those records and putting them online. Hmm. So uh, those you you find it in archives of universities and big libraries, museums in uh, Austria and in Germany and so on. Very often with drawings. Now the drawings were not made at the time. I mean, they were not made, uh, you know, by the Romans. But they were made um, in the 17th or 18th century by people who had already gone through those records. And that's very rich, very interesting research. And uh, I'd love to, if I had more time, uh, love to extend it to now the uh, early, the, the late 19th century and the early 20th. So there's enough. There's enough. Uh, there's enough there for you to keep going on that. Oh yes. Uh, I mean, you know, Chris Holbeck and, and uh, other people like Jerry Clark and others uh, have uh, have looked at uh, the, the records, for example, of the airship sightings yeah. just in the 20 years between 1880 <laughs> uh, and uh, 1900. Uh, there are 10,000 uh, newspaper reports oh, of wow. airships. So, I mean, that would boil down, and there were many hoaxes also. So you'd have to go back and see if the witnesses really existed. And so, I mean, there's a lot of research to be done, but there are certainly hundreds of valid reports uh, in addition to all the fancy reports. That's amazing. So that's good to hear. There's lots of that. I didn't realize it was so... You know, there was that much stuff getting put on the internet from the old archives. That's good. So, what what about the physical uh, evidence you guys are looking at as well? So, um, there is three three kinds of of physical evidence of physical, let's say, physical samples. Okay. Uh, one kind is uh, the implants. And, you know, we could spend another hour on the implants. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on that. I have not. I was very skeptical of it. You know, when Mr. Bigelow uh, had the, the institute, the NIDS, you know, the National Investigation 
Institute, um, we looked at about a dozen claims of implants mm -hmm. from Dr. Lear and others who brought that to the to the labs. Uh, I was frankly skeptical of that because uh, dermatologists tell us that they, you know, they find all kinds of things coming out of the skin of people who mm -hmm. come to them, mm -hmm. and very often they've forgotten that. When they were a kid, you know, they stepped on something uh, and that something broke. It may have been a, a nail or, you know, piece of wire and it gets into the body, it gets encapsulated. The body takes care of it, encapsulates it uh, in some way and moves it around and then it comes out 20 years later. And, uh, you know, it looks like a strange object. And, I mean, all the dermatologists know that. Um, because people go to them and they extract it. And, and uh, so I thought maybe that's what it is. I mean, I'm not a doctor. And I can, since then, I've changed my mind because some of those things, things from Dr. Lear and others, do have strange composition. And uh, some of them couldn't be matched. But I'm not, a, I know, I'm not an expert in that. I don't know. I wouldn't know where to start if somebody came to me with something like that. But I would send them to a dermatologist. Uh, so I'm not really studying that. I shouldn't be studying that. Mm -hmm. um, there are two other things. Uh, there are, at the other end, you know, claims of things that have crashed, like, you know, Roswell. Mm -hmm. So I've heard all the stories. You've, you've heard about mm -hmm. Roswell. Mm -hmm. I've sort of given up because there are so many contradictions and so on. But... There are other crashes that are less publicized than Roswell and are just as rich and interesting, except that the story usually ends with, you know, some people in uniform coming in <laughs> with a big truck and you know, taking it somewhere and giving, a, you know, uh, uh, some fancy explanation to the witnesses and telling them not to talk about it. Well... Of course, the witnesses are going to talk about it sooner or later, and uh, but I don't have uh, the evidence. I don't have the sample to study. Yeah. However, there are other things uh, that that I have, where I have some of the evidence, and other people do, and we've started sh trying to share it. Uh, of things that I call ejecta, I mean things that have been ejected by a an object, and very often in conditions where we know the witnesses and we have you know we believe witnesses are telling the truth. What usually happens is uh, somebody sees a, a disc flying around and it seems to be in deep trouble. It's oscillating and seems about to exp to blow up. And then other objects come close to it, stabilize, seem to stabilize it. Some metal gets ejected, and it's in fusion state. It falls on the ground, and it's too hot to touch, but eventually it cools down. The disk is stable now, and everything flows away, uh, flies away. And what, you're left with this metal that's been flowing uh, you know, and, and becoming solid on the ground, people pick it up, 
And they take it to factory next door, and they take it to a lab or to a university, and it's some sort of metal, some sort of alloy of different metals, and very often it looks like, uh, you know, some industrial materials. So they are told, well, it doesn't look really strange, and, you know, you do what you want with it. And people keep it as, you know, uh, in an envelope, they put it in a drawer and they forget it. Mm -hmm. Well, we have some of those. There is a case, a celebrated case in Brazil at Ubatuba mm -hmm. that apparently there is some question about the date, but I think it happened in 1957, and there was quite a bit of material and has been preserved. It was studied by Professor Sturrock at Stanford University. Um, the, uh, the material seems to be very pure magnesium. Now, there is nothing, there is no such thing as 100% pure magnesium because it would ignite uh, and burn in contact with the air, with the oxygen in the air. So uh, the magnesium that we have is protected by oxide. Um, but it's essentially, it's very, very pure. It's purer than the standard of magnesium. On the other hand, you can buy the standard of magnesium and you can refine it further if you want to for, you know, in a lab or in a big industrial factory, for example, for aerospace applications. Uh, so maybe that's what it is, but it doesn't seem to have the same isotopes as isotope ratios as ordinary magnesium. So we continue to look at that. Hmm. I was in... Um, <laughs> so there is a colorful history to those samples. Um, uh, APRO, you know, the Lorenzen yeah. uh, UF research group in the late 50s got some of those samples from a very reliable investigator named Dr. Fontes, who was an MD in Brazil, uh, and I actually knew Dr. Fontes. He came from Chicago, and I, I spent a day with him, and he gave me some of his records. Um, Dr. Fontes had some samples that he gave to APRO, and the U.S. Air Force said, we'd like to test it. So they gave a, sa a sample. Those were microscopic. I mean, it was very, very small quantities of it. And the Air Force uh, blew it up and trying to test it. So they went back to to the Lorenzen, and they said, can we have another one because we blew up the one you gave us? And the Lorenzans wisely said, we, we, we don't think we should give you another sample because you, you, know, you blew up the first one. But the, um, they gave um, a couple of the samples to Dr. Sturrock, and those were studied um, under good conditions by different labs, including a French lab, and who uh, studied the isotopes. And uh, it does look strange. One of the isotopes is in, seems to be in a higher um, quantity than, than it should. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if it comes from space, uh, the isotope ratios in meteorites are different from the isotope ratios of metals on Earth, uh, which is not a natural phenomenon. So, you know, there is some argument about that. 
but there is very, very little of that material. Now, I was in Argentina six months ago on another case, and I saw um, two large, fairly large samples, um, the, the size of a walnut, which is pretty large. I mean, we don't need that much material to do an isotope analysis. And the, the people in Argentina were kind enough to give me um, give me part of that. So we are going to be redoing those experiments that uh, Dr. Stewart did, and we'll have because we have plenty of material, and we're ready to share it with anybody who wants to. I mean, this is the kind of thing that where this should be a real science where you share the material and and the results with your colleagues, you know, wherever they are. So. Um, I'm trying to find another French lab that would be willing to share the material with us and yeah. redo the same mm-hmm. experiment. Are, now, are, yeah. are, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful that that will eventually show? And I mean, I know you can, you can't really speculate on it, but that'll eventually show that something is is not natural from outer space. Like we even even can you can you look at old like out of place artifacts and some of those things as well through isotopic. Uh, yeah, yes, yes. So we're not ready to publish anything because this is just preliminary. But, you know, in Silicon Valley, where I am, uh, th- those instruments are available. I mean, those um, the instruments you use are mass uh, spectrographers. Mm-hmm. And they are, you know, very busy. I mean, those are ex- expensive instruments that yeah. cost about $7 million. Mm-hmm. And they are, people are busy with them especially geologists and people who study meteorites. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they find isotope ratios that are different from Earth. And those are extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, They come in those uh, meteorites come from the other end of the solar system and they they crash on Earth. And so you have um, a standard there for what's uh, the kind of ratios that are found in science. But those those are geologists, and they use those instruments 24 hours a day. So, but um, th- there are other newer instruments that we have access to. So, and that's um, what we find. So, to to jump to the punchline, yeah, we find something that is very curious. We thought we would find either that those were terrestrial ratios, mm-hmm. and you know there is nothing wrong with that. Uh, even in a UFO context, I mean, they could be using terrestrial materials as fuel yeah. or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or we would find extraterrestrial ratios. In other words, ratios that would differ by 5% or maybe 10% from terrestrial ratios. We find something that's very weird. Uh, that is neither terrestrial nor extraterrestrial. Mm. We find evidence of things that have been re-engineered, where the isotopes have been re-engineered. Wow. For example, there is one element that has five iso- known isotopes uh, in different frequency, you know, different abundance. Um, and uh, in the sample we've got, two of the isotopes are not present, and the other three are present at 33%, 33%, and 33%. Now, the, the only thing that can happen is if somebody has separated the isotopes, 
and then reintroduce them into an alloy for some reason that we can't fathom what that reason would be. Mm. You know, especially if it comes from 1947. Because in 1947, we were doing isotope separation on uranium. You know, 235, 237, so on, to build a bomb. But those were the only... And that was, you know, that was very expensive. It was super secret. It was very difficult. It was... uh, and there was a race to do it before the Germans could do it and, you know, uh, produce the, the bomb, which we did. So, but nobody was doing that with, um, you know, ordinary battles. I mean, that would, that would be crazy. That would be, you know, billions of dollars if, if you wanted to do that. Even today, I mean, that would be an expensive proposition if you wanted to do more than a few grams of it. So... So we're stuck with that. So, again, this is very preliminary. We're not ready to publish it. There could be mistakes somewhere. There could be something wrong with the instrument, although we don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we need to redo it. And that's one thing that, you know, the witnesses have, uh, you know, come up with something that fell in their backyard, and they they say, how come you haven't analyzed my stuff yet? And, <laughs> and the answer is, uh, yes, they're right, uh, but the answer is that it's difficult to do. You, you have to have access to a lab, and then one, one analysis isn't, you know, isn't good. You, you need to do several, probably in several labs, if you want to get to the trace elements. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can say, you know, it's magnesium with iron and, you know, and zinc, you know, so what? But if you really want to do it in uh, sufficient detail, unless it, it's just a common, you know, alloy, uh, you, you need to do it with several labs, several instruments, uh, and certainly when you get to the isotopes, you need to redo it several times uh, because the one isotope can be masking another depending on the technology you use. And again, those are difficult. Uh, it's difficult to get access to those instruments because they're expensive, and the people who want them want to be paid. And uh, and those instruments are used 24 hours a day by by scientists. So yeah. you you need. But it's, things are getting better because those there are new instruments that are less expensive, easier to use. And in Silicon Valley, we have access to the people who actually invent those instruments. So. When something weird shows up, we can we can really drill down into what's happening, and that's what what we plan to do. And I'm I'm not an expert in that, but I've gathered, you know, I've been going around the world trying to gather those uh, samples, and people are very generous in sharing those samples. You know, I I'm sorry to say, except for some UFO groups. <laughs> who have samples and they are keeping them as relics, you know. Someday they are going to build a basilica <laughs> and they will be saying prayers to those relics. So they don't, um, you know, and all I need is really the head of a pin, you know. I, I'm not, I don't need the rest of it. And I return the head of a pin, you know, to them. So this is, uh, this is not a secret operation, you know, that where we're going to take it to the CIA, uh, 
uh, I think this will be done in normal, uh, you know, science labs and company company labs, and we'll publish what we. In fact, we've already sort of pre-published what what we found so far, hmm. and um, uh, that that place in Argentina was very generous in uh, giving us, and we have uh, we have a trail of evidence, uh, you know. Of the data and so on, so we know where it comes from, we know who handled it and, and how, and all that you know is open. And again, if some lab in Poland you know wants to test it, you know we'll send them the thing by FedEx. I mean, there's no great secrecy and no great uh, you know. Uh, we're not going to sell it on eBay for a million dollars. I mean, this is anybody can have. We have enough of it. So, so Dr. Ballet. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, and, and I know right now I'm going to be highly speculative on a work that you're still, you know, uh, analyzing. But could it be that what uh, these samples, the results that you guys are getting, is that we are dealing with an agency that is not only capable of manipulating the space-time continuum the way that yourself and, and, and other researchers have uh, documented plentifully in many cases, but that, that is also capable of transforming energy into matter and vice versa? Oh, yes. I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, most of us were working on, on this. Uh, I, I cannot speak for other people, but uh, I think the answer you would be getting today is yes. Okay. And, uh, you know, 10 years ago, People would have said maybe, but we're we're way past the maybe stage. And by the way, that that could be why the the, the cover up is being maintained because mm. the cover up, you know, made sense in the fifties because everybody thought, oh, goody, we're going to find some secret of propulsion before the Russians, you know. But mm -hmm. we know the the Russians have been doing the same study. Uh, and they are, they've come come up against the same things, so maybe it's time to. Uh, but but if uh, those things are opened up, the public is going to demand. You know, I mean, we've been paying for all this stuff uh, as taxpayers. You know, tell us what it is and what it does, and there may not be an answer, because if you know, I have to assume that there are scientists in the government who've been looking at this. In fact, I know mm -hmm. there are scientists mm -hmm. in the government because I've spoken to some of them. Uh, and they haven't violated any any great, you know, secrecy. I mean, they wouldn't. But they've shared their puzzlement about what the state, you know, of their research and... Uh, if they must have found the same thing we're finding, you know, maybe 10 years mm -hmm. for us, and uh, there is no answer to that. I mean, how do you do that, and and why? I mean, why would you separate the isotopes of a common metal and re-engineer re that metal to create this kind of crazy alloy? Uh, you know, but there is no no question that's what we're finding, and there is no pattern. So, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley. I know, you know, I've been in Silicon Valley in, I don't know, several dozens of, 
of years. Uh, <laughs> I've financed a number of high-tech companies. I have access to those people. They trust me. Uh, and, uh, you know, what the, one of the luminaries of Silicon Valley, a physicist, was involved in the early semiconductor breakthroughs in Silicon Valley, <laughs> told me, look, Jack, you know, you, you, suppose you test one of those things and you find 10 features that are completely novel in physics. How do you know which one is significant? You know, unless, unless the thing, you know, starts levitating or something, and <laughs> that would be nice, you know, that would be nice, but we, we're not there yet. Uh, how do you know, so you find some weird configuration of molecules, how do you know what it does? How do you know if it's a shield against radiation? How do you know if it's part of a propulsion system? Mm-hmm. How do you know if it's a guidance system? How do you know if it's something that's interacting with the brain of the pilot, assuming there is a pilot? Mm-hmm. Um, no, you can't, you know, as somebody put it, you know, it's like... Uh, you give a garage door opener to uh, Leonardo da Vinci, what is he going to do with it? So, uh, now I'm, I'm still, I mean, that's why I got into science, it's because I, mm-hmm. I like that kind of mystery. Uh, I like to work with people like me who like that kind of mystery, so I'm not going to be discouraged by that. Mm-hmm. I think it's it may be a test. And in some ways, it doesn't uh, matter. I mean, in some ways, it, it's the question. It's just the figuring out that something is is a, a mystery that cannot be solved on this planet. You know, this that's the main thing. I mean, once we get past that, then we can figure out you know what 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 it's supposed to do. Well, how do we know that it cannot be solved on this planet? I mean. You know, uh, we, let's go back to John Keel with his ultra-terrestrials. Maybe there are, <laughs> maybe there is a hidden civilization at the bottom of the ocean that's right, been right. doing this yeah, for yeah. thousands of years. Or maybe uh, you know there is another universe uh, five minutes ahead of us that has a gateway where you know they can come in here. Maybe the, that's what UFOs are. Maybe they are gateways and not craft. Mm. Yeah, now, I, the, the I should have said that. Have, yeah. <laughs> Maybe the, the people who own those things from you know let's 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 say Roswell for convenience, uh, somebody owns uh, you know whatever crashed in the desert. Um, now there will be two kinds of people there, uh, and there will be the the people who want to get to the propulsion system before the Russians, okay, or the mm-hmm. Chinese, things, mm-hmm. you know, but. Uh, Good luck. Maybe those things. Uh, how do we know they have a propulsion system? You know, I, I mean, it's like somebody from the uh, uh, the time of the horse and buggy, you know, propulsion, looking at a Lexus, uh, late model <laughs> Lexus, looking for the horse. You know, I mean, there isn't a horse. Okay, so I, I think it's kind of stupid. And whenever there has been a project, you know, a Pentagon project, it has all been, you know, let's come up with the categories, and the categories are, you know, propulsion and energy generation and so on. Maybe they don't have that. I mean, if it's a topological engine, mm-hmm. you really don't need propulsion. Uh, you can rotate into a fifth dimension. 
and you're gone. You don't you don't need an engine, you know, with a piston and and uh, fuel and all that stuff. There was an article that I can't, I still can't believe that guy wrote that. There was a an, an article in Science magazine in the sixties, you know, let's say around sixty. 65, 67, I mean, science magazine, you know, the, the, the standard for American science from a very well-known uh, celebrated physicist, American physicist, member of the Academy of Sciences. And he said, there couldn't be UFOs because when we go to the site where the witness says he saw something, we don't find traces of propellants. <laughs> You know, he actually, Jesus. and they printed that in Science Magazine. And that's what, you know, the, the skeptics, you know, are still at that stage. If you don't leave, you know, traces of propellant in the desert, you couldn't have had spacecraft. Well, yeah, our spacecraft use propellants. But remember, our spacecraft are based on the design of the ancient Chinese of 5,000 years ago. that mm-hmm. They had rockets. I mean, they were launching rockets. And... Uh, Mostly for fireworks, you know, <laughs> but, but that's good enough. I mean, you can, with you know, that kind of rocket, you can go pretty high in the atmosphere. And that's essentially the same thing we're doing. Now we're, we're guiding it with computers and all, all that stuff. But essentially, you know, you take a cylinder and you fill it with something and you, uh, you set fire to it and it goes up in the sky. And we're still stuck with that model, even the Pentagon. And... This is not what it is. I mean, guys, you know, come on, wake up. So Mm -hmm. you still have those people who are looking for the secret of propulsion of the UFOs. And then you have the the other people who are more Silicon Valley types who are looking for the, you know, the intellectual property. We're going to study this and we're going to find the IP and we're going to patent it and we're going to make billions of dollars, Mm -hmm. which is another stupid stupid thing but at least they are motivated to look at you know to think about it in creative ways so you know i've nothing against you know taking this to a lawyer but i don't think the lawyer is going to tell you how this thing works we we need a different approach and we need an, an open scientific approach to this i mean what's wrong with that i agree completely but what me, interesting to me is that uh, the cutting edge uh, scientific um, theorizing and speculation sounds a lot like uh, ancient mysticism. Like, for example, I listened to your latest interview on Coast to Coast with George Knapp, in which you mentioned how you suspected that this phenomenon seemed to suggest, suggest that we our space-time continuum, so uh, where, where we, you know, three-dimensional beings inhabit, it's only a small subset of a bigger reality. And that really excited me because it, it resonates heavily with my way of thinking. And also because, well, pardon me for saying it, but it sounds a lot like ancient Gnosticism. <laughs> well, wait a minute. You know, those are the guys who gave us science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, they were, they were doing science with the concepts and the memes and and the philosophy they had in those days, and uh, essentially, we're all asking questions about the same. We're asking the same questions, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, 
they, in around the 17th and 18th century, uh, that morphed into modern science. But, you know, Kepler was an astrologer. Yeah. Let's not forget that. And uh, Euler, who is a great mathematician who gave us the logarithm, logarithmic scale and the log tables that, uh, I mean, nobody uses log tables anymore because we have computers, but, mm-hmm. you know, when I went to school, I, you know, I had a, a book called The Table of Logarithms. That came from Euler. Uh, Euler invented logarithms to facilitate astrological calculation. <laughs> you know, he didn't do it for any other reason. And, um, and you know, it worked. Uh, it still does. Uh, so let's, you know, let's pay tribute to those guys. Uh, the, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of what we, the, the way we think about uh, in, in popular culture, the way we think about the Muslims, you know, and the Arabs, and the mm-hmm. Arab culture, uh, you know, look at the names of the stars, you know, al yeah. you know, they all, uh, think of how many stars have names that start with Al, and think about algebra and algebra. alchemy. Alchemy, you know, yeah. You know, where did that come from? Well, the, the Arabs didn't necessarily originate a lot of that. They transmitted it from uh, previous civilizations, also previous cultures, and then they added their own genius to, to it. And, yeah, there is a continuum of scientific inquiry, and we're just at the tip of it, but we're not any more clever than those guys were, and we're asking the same questions. Mm-hmm, definitely. I'm still confounded by the same mysteries, you know, the same lights in the sky. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, anything else, Graham? Well, we, uh, I don't want to keep you uh, too long there, Dr. Valet. Um, do you have anything that you want to say before we uh, let you go? Well, uh, you know, your question you asked at the beginning, um, you know, that's a question that people ask often, and it's a fair question. You know, what's new <laughs> in the last 40 years? <laughs> and it's, in a way, it's an embarrassing question uh, because the uh, uh, if I read, you know, the Mufon Journal today, it's not that different <laughs> from, uh, you know, the stuff that we were writing 40 years ago. But, you know, we have to do that. We have to just keep uh, documenting what we have. Uh, I think we have new concepts. Um, I think that um, organizations like Mufon and the others around the world are doing a great job of you know, maintaining, because the newspapers are not interested anymore. Yep. I mean, they, you know, if it doesn't get resolved, you know, quickly, uh, they, they go on to something else. And what you find on the Internet isn't reliable, but there are, you know, uh, good organizations that are scrubbing that record and keeping the good stuff, and uh, we have to keep doing that. Um, I think we... We have better instrumentation now uh, to analyze the, you know, the samples we've been talking about. You know, in, in a way, what we need is more skeptics. But we, we hmm. need skeptics who are not stupid skeptics like <laughs> we have now. 
we need skeptics that we can argue with, you yeah. know, creatively. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. We, in science, you always have to push against something. Yeah. yeah. Nobody ever comes up with a hypothesis, you know, that and they are the only ones and to discover this and and they, you know, usually you you have a hypothesis and you need a way to test it, and then other people have other hypotheses against you, and they test it against you, and that's how, you know, the truth finally emerges. And we, we need that dialogue, which is why I say we, we need other labs to get involved and redo the, the experiments we're doing. And I hope, you know, what I'm trying to do now, at my advanced age, uh, I have no delusion that I'm going to solve the problem or that anybody else is mm. going to. But we, we need to keep pushing and uh, get more science done and get more people involved, yeah. including skeptics. Yeah, it all it all contributes to the to the you know to the solution, and I appreciate you answering that that somewhat embarrassing question because I've you know I've been interested in this for twenty five years on and off, and it's it, there is a couple there's a couple answers to that. I mean, I've seen change like the change that you're talking about and change in our culture, but what hasn't changed in my mind is is the acceptance in the you know in the scientific and academic community, which I mean I'm sure it has changed a little bit, but we're still at that spot where it's still, you know, somewhat of a taboo subject. So I appreciate you addressing all the, you know, all the stuff that really is changing in the background. Well, and, and the science itself changes. I mean, yeah. 40 years ago, we were teaching at Northwestern, you know, certainly Dr. Heineck and, and I and others were teaching that any slowly rotating yellow star that you saw in the sky probably had a planetary system around it. Yeah. But we couldn't prove it. Right, right. Yeah. That yeah. was something that you would derive from celestial mechanics and so on. Well, today, uh, I mean, there are catalogs of something like 5,000 planets that yeah. we can actually see, or, or we can actually detect it. Yeah. may not be able to see it yet, but someday we will. So, uh, so the skepticism has been eroded uh, in science. In, and... Uh, and now they are teaching that because you know that's a, an exciting field. So that opens up the question: you know, is there somebody living there, and uh, what is life anyway? And you find out that um, they don't have a good definition of what life is. Uh, so, and that's embarrassing too. Uh, you know, uh, you find life at the bottom of the ocean when there is no air and no light. That's not supposed to happen, and you find life uh, in in outer not in outer space, but you find the components of mm -hmm. DNA in mm -hmm. outer space, complex molecules. Now, if I had said that when I took exams in astrophysics, I would have been thrown out. No <laughs> astrophysics one hundred and one. Um, but now we know that that's true. And that, uh, it, well, if the components of DNA are there, and uh, that, you know, drifts down to a planet that has an atmosphere, uh, you know, what happens? So it's much, it's much more open. And the skeptics have to be a little bit more agile and, and a little bit more open-minded. And I think maybe that's the main change in the last. Have you tried any of the, like, C-SETI stuff or looked at any of that? Yes, yes. Well, there are people within 
uh, within SETI. But there isn't one SETI anymore. There are three of them. Uh, no, I'm, I'm talking about the official yeah. amicable SETI. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out all of them are in San Francisco, which is interesting in terms of culture. Huh. Um, and uh, that's exciting. And uh, they, they, they have to be open-minded. So, you know, I have hopes. Well, yeah. I think that they, they were referring to Stephen Greer, C-City, and, uh, and his well, protocols. I'm not referring to Stephen Greer. I, you know... <laughs> uh, feelings about uh, what the, uh, the people see when they go out uh, on the hilltop and they look at the sky. Uh, I haven't seen any evidence of that. I'm talking about um, the, you know, the, the scientific search for extraterrestrial yeah. yeah. intelligence. Yeah. Now, they are defining it strictly as extraterrestrial, which means they don't really want to look at UFOs. Uh, but that's changing. Well, there's some big telescopes coming on up soon as well, which should do, that might change everything altogether again. It's not extraterrestrial. What good's a telescope, though? Well, uh, when we f- get to the point where we can analyze or, or distinguish some of the gases mm. in the atmospheres of uh, exoplanets, I think that will, again, uh, be another step forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah but of course, I think that there should be a dialogue about about the reliable UFO sightings. Yeah. True, true. Yeah. So, you know, but I, I'm hopeful that dialogue, and it can, it can be a sober dialogue without people yelling at each other. <laughs> That's what I mean. That would be a breakthrough. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I have to go, guys. Yeah, thanks for staying on long with us, and uh, we'll put a, we'll put links to all your stuff in the show notes as well. And and uh, yeah, we really want to thank you for coming on. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for your questions, and thanks for what you're doing. Okay, excellent. Been, a, been an absolute right. pleasure, okay. Doctor Rowling. Good night. Good night. Good night. And that was our chat with the one and only Doctor Jacques Vallée. What do you think, guys? This is a big one for you guys. Well, I, I should have clarified my question to him about the... I just, I just want to bring that up right away before I forget. About the question of whether isotopes have been rearranged or molecules have been rearranged in something. like. It's funny how those guys in the scientific community go directly to, well, how are you going to figure out whether this or that was the intention or what that's for? I mean, to me, the most important part, and I shouldn't have said planet, I should have said something like paradigm or our... You know, our what we know of can be human made like something that shows there's an extra intelligence somewhere that should be the real, the real the quest for proof yeah, on that. It's more likely we'll find ruins. Well, I think that what these guys are, are uncovering is that uh, this intelligence is capable of manifesting uh, objects, you know, uh, out of thin air, literally. You know, you know, it's 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 alchemy. You know, it's the ultimate uh, alchemical alchemical trick to to create uh, matter out of energy and vice versa. Yeah. So maybe what they're saying is no. This is these are not craft 
are coming from, you know, that, you know, took, took off from, you know, the planet X in the, in the Y galaxy and then landed here and left their trash and they didn't clean up when they left, uh, is that this intelligence manifested something that resembles a craft or maybe it's interpreted as a craft mm-hmm. by the witness, maybe because the, the phenomenon is mimicking the expectations of the yeah, witness, exactly. by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But it's using like components that turn out to be in a way terrestrial, but they are not ordinary. They are not they are extraordinary in the same kind of confounding tricksterish way <laughs> that the phenomenon seems to be, you know, uh, getting yeah, at this. Yeah, yeah. Yes, what they're saying is okay, so maybe the US Army has like a hundred crushed saucers in their hangars, right? But they can't do anything with that because, number one, they found they are made of terrestrial components, and number two, they found they're not, that's not actually uh, uh, a motor or a power source. Yeah, so it's yeah, like, yeah. how is this? That, or a communication, this, or a communications uh, nothing, desk yeah. or anything, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that we, that we have the, 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 the uh, uh, stories, and I don't discount them, that, you know, there is no control panel, there is no stick it's you more know, like it's more like thing. the it's more like the Ujong Bong from the Star Wars episodes. It's like a living, you know, living living craft in a way. Oh my god, man! You, I, I was watching Netflix last night. Uh, I was I'm I'm, in, I'm intending to rewatch the Star Trek: The Next Generation, the whole seven seasons, and oh, the first favorite. two that's episodes, the first two episodes in Contra at Farpoint, it's so far out because they talk about this living craft yeah you know that, that capable of uh creating things you know by by sheer thought that, yeah. that was the whole idea of of, of of the of the first two episodes of star trek and I, I was like wow you know they were they were touching those those ideas out there you know that that you know uh, uh spacefaring civilization like the Federation of Planets, you know, the, the, the guys, you know, us in the 24th century is still encountering something so alien and so incomprehensible, you know, that it, the, the, it, the technology that, that, that it seems to, to exert, it's, you know, sheer magic. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's unreal. So, so the other thing, Darren. I, so, if I watch the first two episodes, I can get that. Then, like the first two episodes of the of Next Generation, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. the first, yeah, 90s. the first encounter on okay. Firepoint. That's yeah. hardcore nineties, yeah. baby. Ninety yeah. three, baby. Yeah, I wow. watched. I've seen them all. Yeah, I was watching some. It's of my favorite one. Yeah, I can't believe yeah, right. old now. Getting back to to Older our rock. to our conversation with Doctor Jeff Ballet, you know, I mean. I think a man, we were lucky that he gave us a little more to, extra time. Yep. Out of the, you know, a lot of expected time that he was going to talk to us. And I like, I, I guess I covered like 5% <laughs> of my questions. <laughs> you know, I guess I needed two extra hours to really, totally. to really milk the man. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I did bring up, I tried to stay away from, and then fuck, of course, Darren brings up the whole C-SETI thing again. I mean, I tried to, I, I think you missed how I said keeping personalities and organizations out of it. I'm trying to get it to a people's movement and take away, you know, all that. And sure. See what, he, see what he says, you know? Fuck that. I wanted, I wanted a C-SETI answer. Yeah, he didn't want to go there, you I know? know. That's yeah. good to know. 
It's refreshing. Yeah. 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 Well, well. For what, for what it's worth, I was, you know, thinking about asking him about about Tom DeLonge and, and uh, the whole thing that the guy seems is promising to have this big reveal and he seems to be in cahoots with people in the know, in the government. And some people were speculating that Dr. Valet was involved with that, but he, you know, was very adamant in that in that interview that I mentioned with Dr. with George Knapp on Coast to Coast, that he has nothing to do with that. He was only asked to write the foreword of the Long's book that he co-wrote with Peter Lavenda, and that's it. But I wanted to ask about his opinion on whether he thinks that Tom DeLong is going to be the next Paul Benowitz. In other words, the next yeah. someone who yeah. is a, an unwilling agent of this information. Yeah. Yeah, you see he seems to be I don't know, I don't want to say but losing it a little bit. He was getting super political there, which it makes me wonder about, you know, Podesta and Clinton and all that, that whole that whole crowd of disclosure advocates. Well, Miss Ballet is totally, you know, skeptical about the whole disclosure yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, taking into consideration that he once was promised or he was lured by by someone, a general, someone in the Air Force, to hand him and Dr. Heineck an actual film of a UFO landing. <laughs> the, the infamous Holloman, Holloman um, tape. Yeah. yeah, so he was the second person who was promised the tape. Jeez. But since he didn't have any, like, reassurance from the people in the government that they were going to give them, they were, you know, being very obscure and oblique about it. He, they told them, you know, to get lost. It's, they said, well, good luck with that, because, but we are not going to risk our reputation in something in which, you know, it's, it seems that we are just being played with. Yeah, yeah. It was really fascinating talking to him about... Um you know, about I mean, what a what a great opportunity to get to talk to somebody like him who's been, you know, in the circles like you know, been on panels with McKenna, and he's yep. talked to Keel and 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 Doctor Heineck. I mean, Spielberg, yep. Spielberg. Like it really is. Yuri Geller. It really, yeah, it really is and a, ge- a generation. And Hal Puzo, and all of that. Yeah, a, yeah, a generation of people that were really shaping our view of consciousness and and reality. You know, crazy. Ingo Swan, you know, Ingo yeah. Swan taught him to remote view. Yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's a huge, it was a huge honor, you know, and, and I admit that I was very nervous at the beginning. You know, oh, me too. Like... I just stumbled across <laughs> the, across it for sure. But that's okay. It's all done now. Oh, you guys mm-hmm. did great. That was a fun one. It's just great how open-minded he is about, about, the you know the reality is not very dogmatic and but I mean the the one thing that shocked me was how he I don't think he understood the paranoia of the UFO groups and not giving up material like he you know on one hand he admits there's a cover up but on the other hand he's like well I'll just hand it over I'll just FedEx it to this lab in Poland like I mean that's you know that that would be like <gasps> people you know and I mean imagine just you know, being in a UFO group and you've got this material that's supposedly from a craft of some sort mm. and you're just going to hand it over to somebody to ship around the world. Like, that's pretty, you know. We should get our hands on some of that. And you want some for the, the studio, yeah. yeah. 
Well, I wanted to ask him, you know, what, what's, the la- what's the last time that we actually had a, a case in which uh, there was some uh, physical evidence, physical yeah. evidence yeah. left? You know, because he's talking about Ubatuba, and that's 1957, man. You know? I know. It's been a while. I've always had the initial reaction that whenever I hear of those types of incidents that it's man-made, like it's some sort of uh, secret man-made stuff that's not working properly. You know, when you get the people with the radiation poisoning or the people with physical, you know, problems from, from well, their sightings. The, and... the, 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 the famous Cash Landrum case, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm very partial in that particular case, maybe only that one, and that... That was probably a, a man-made secret uh, project because yeah, of yeah. the of the radiation that that uh, uh, those witnesses suffered from. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So I think maybe I'll ask in the, in my next. He says, "Should I even say it? Maybe not." But I think I'm going to throw the intention out there that um, that we want a physical okay. physical <laughs> specimen. All right, Leave us. You don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to land. To yeah, you don't have to land. Just throw me some slag. Something. Some slag. Yeah. <laughs> Give me some slag. Yeah. Give me an intergalactic bird. Flip me off. Or how about some intergalactic trash? Yeah, yeah what, if, what if UFOs are living entities and the slack is their equivalent yeah. of their <laughs> what if it's like What if it's like an A&W drive through cup from yeah, like exactly. 1952? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, fucking, that was a good one. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, oh, Red. Yeah, for sure. Oh, man, it was my, my absolute joy and pleasure. Bingo, bango. Uh, check out grammarica.ca slash support, guys. Check out all the different ways you can help us keep having these uh, conversations without any commercials. We don't try to sell you any shit, and we don't make you a product. So if you like them and you get a little value from them, check out grammarica.ca slash support. Sign up for a monthly, if you can. Everything from a buck a month to 30 bucks a month. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you can do a one-time donation. And if you don't have any money, that's fine, too. Just spam gram. Just spam gram. Review the show. Uh, UFO and- sightings and... And you guys need to tell people about the show. It's that's important. Yeah, that's our most important marketing Seems like you guys campaign. aren't telling people yeah. about the show anymore. That's the problem. <laughs> you need to keep telling people about the show. Either on by signing them up for the newsletter, grammarica.ca slash news, you just punch the newsletter in there, done. Or you just, just throw that shit on Facebook, yeah, Twitter, whatever, wherever you are. You for, spread it around. Get people on. We're going to have an app right away. That's going to make it a little bit oh, easier. Yeah, yeah, right. That should be out in the next, you know, three, four weeks. We should have the app out. So, yeah, fucking share the show. You got to share the show. You guys aren't holding up your end of the bargain. Thanks, Red. Thanks for <laughs> all your help, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening, guys. We will see you next week. You, you, you make, make, make my, my, Look from your brown eyes and diamond.
love letter, a love letter. And I sat down next to her and I said, do you come here often? And she spoke. She pulled me in as if her beauty was a rope. The day I met her, the day I met her. You, you, you make, make, make my, my, my life, life, life brighter, 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 brighter.
Graham, Graham.